0: Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. But there also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that combines military, intelligence, economic, scientific and political operations. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. People all over this country are wondering whether or not this great country is evolving into an oligarchic society. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs, that order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. And today, that new world is struggling to be born. The dream of a new world order. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will look at what the coming technocracy might look like. So in the previous episode, I talked about how there are a lot of aspects that we are already living that are related to technocracy. There's a lot of technocratic aspects of our current systems and our current society, and I compared that to some illusions with Orwell's 1984 and Machiavelli's The Prince and um, the idea of the panopticon and I kind of related how all those played out and what that looked like from the viewpoint of a technocratic system and technocracy and I made I believe a fairly good argument that we are already in that somewhere in that realm I'm not really sure if it is fully enacted right now as those illusions refer to or if we're kind of at the beginning of that and getting into it further but we are in that to some degree And so now I want to focus on what is next. So like I said before, this first view is something that is a little more visible. It's a little more obvious. The leaders and the systems are ones that everybody sees, everybody knows, and there is a lot of information about it and they are actual physical visible things so also if you look at the philosophy of Deleuze Deleuze is a philosopher more modern post-structural and there's a concept that he talks about that I think is very relevant here he talks about systems that are arborescent versus systems that are rhizomatic. So the idea of the former, the arborescent approach, would be that there is a clear hierarchy where each layer imposes its desires and its goals on the next layer. Basically everything has its place, everything has its function, they can be identified and understood individually. It's like the parts of a tree. So you obviously see the tree, you can tell that there is a tree trunk, there are tree branches, there are leaves, there are buds, there are flowers, there are all of these different things. They all have a specific role, they all um, can be identified individually, we can see what each one of them are, we can determine what they are doing, we see what their role is, how they interact with the other parts of the tree But they are not defined by how they interact with the other parts of the tree. They're just defined by what they are because they are individual things. And uh, that is much more like what this first view of the... I guess structure of a technocracy that I am putting forth, uh, it's more of this approach, the arborescent approach. The next structure that I am proposing is more of the ladder style, where Deleuze talks about a rhizomatic approach. Now with a rhizomatic perspective, this is relating to like a root system like the rhizomes that they don't have a clear beginning or an end. They could technically send up shoots at any point. They can come in contact with each other, join together, and then they become the same system. And it's how they interact with each other and where they send up shoots and where they send out new roots and all of this stuff and what they come in contact with and then they merge with other root systems. Maybe they get cut off from others. And it's a much more fluid approach. It's a lot less structured. It's hard to identify exactly where one system ends and another system begins and where two systems have merged together. And when they merge, do they become something new or are they still the same thing? Well they're not clearly identifiable because they are more identified by their relationship to one another and to other things rather than being self-identified as specific things with specific roles in a specific hierarchy. That's not a rhizomatic approach. A rhizomatic approach is different, obviously, and this is more like the systems of this second view of a technocracy that I am presenting are, they're much more like this. They're much more rhizomatic. So with this, there is not necessarily any clear direction or strategy or specific system in charge, so to say, or a specific system that is controlling certain parts of society. It's different systems that are coming up in different ways at different times and taking uh, leadership roles and combining with other systems. And it's not necessarily as physical and as visible. It's not something that there's a lot of information on that you can figure out very clearly and it can adapt. Even if you do figure it out, it could be that it just changes and this is something that happens. Again, it's a fluid system. And an example that I've thought of that I was uh, rolling around in my head the other day was a chair. So if you build a chair, let's say I were to build a chair and I presented it to somebody and said, hey, look at this chair that I built. And someone would look at it. And obviously, well, yes, that is a chair. And from an arborescent perspective, this is a chair because that is its identity. Those are chair legs that is a seat and that is a chair back and these are identifiable parts it is very obvious and that is what it is the legs support the seat the seat is what you sit on and the back is what you rest your back on and it's pretty clear but if you look at it from more of a rhizomatic approach the way this could play out a little differently would be that it is not necessarily a chair just in and of itself. It is a chair if it is something that you set by a table and you sit in. That would make it a chair because we are identifying the chair based on how it interacts and how other things interact with it. And so, what if I take this chair and I set it in the corner of a room and I set other small chairs around it and I use it as a little place for my kids to do a little art project on. Well, then is it still a chair? Well, from a rhizomatic perspective, I I guess you could possibly say that it becomes a table because that's what it's being used for. That's what it is in that instant. And so it would be a table. And based on how the kids interact with that table or chair, um, it can change what it is. Basically, it can evolve. And not only can it evolve, it can evolve other things that are interacting with it, and they can merge together. So maybe the project that the kids are doing is something that is changed based on the fact that they're doing it on this chair. Maybe they see the way that the backing of the chair is. Maybe it has slats that go across, and then they're doing something where they're making some little wooden birdhouses or something, and they decide, hey, we can attach these slats of wood that we're using for our birdhouses and put them on the tops of these slats on the seat back and make little shelves and then this can be our little work table and we can put our pencils and our markers up here on these shelves and you know, I guess hopefully you can see where I'm going with this. I'm doing all this off the top of my head mainly and so um, hopefully it's fairly clear but the idea here is that from a rhizomatic perspective it is not just necessarily a chair and only a chair with specific parts that work specific ways that you can clearly see. From a rhizomatic perspective, it is what it is based on how other things are interacting with it and Deleuze calls other things machines everything is a machine whether it's a an entire societal system a government or whether it's something so small as an individual person or an individual action or job or something like this they're all different machines that interact with each other in different ways and they mesh and they meld and they change things and they evolve all of this stuff and so the chair example is one that just ran through my mind, and uh, hopefully that kind of makes sense. But the idea here is that from a rhizomatic perspective, you can have a society with technocratic systems that aren't necessarily as clear and definable as what I put forth in the previous episode, where it's definitely here you have this council of experts and they're going to make all the decisions and you have these different machines these different systems corporations governments whatever fulfilling their own individual roles and all this kind of stuff manipulating people having systems of control that are set the panopticon is something that's um, confined to a specific environment so you go inside of this prison and there's ultimate control within that prison because of the panopticon system or you go inside a school and the school is designed in such a way that everything works the way they want it to work. Or maybe it's a governmental system, and it's set up in a way that as people interact with this government system within this geographical area, it is designed in such a way to work in a certain way with a certain hierarchy and all this stuff. Those things are relatively straightforward. But when we move on to this next example that I'm going to It's very different. It's not the same way. Things are happening in the background. It's systems, it's movements, it's concepts that are flowing, they're evolving, they're working together. And it's not necessarily that there is a specific system of control or group of people in control behind everything, like you might have in a very clear, straightforward technocracy or technocratic governance system. It's very different, and um, I would say a little more nefarious, maybe. But that's what we're probably going into for the later evolution of technocracy, a technocratic system. So to make a little bit of a connection here... I can connect these two systems by looking at how the allusions are referred to last week evolve. So one aspect of this would be in Orwell's 1984. He talks a lot about new speak, and it's this idea of making a new language where you're making it out of the same basically the same language as we would think of it, but you are changing the definitions of words and you're mostly eliminating words so that you get it down to where there are the fewest number of words that you could possibly need. They all have very clear meanings that everyone understands. And it gets to the point where society can't even really rebel because they don't even have a word for rebellion. They don't have a word for conspiracy. They don't have a word for... Lying, They don't have words for these things. How could you even think or contemplate of these things if you don't even have a word for it? It's not even a concept within your society that you can draw on or that you've ever heard of. And so that's roughly the idea here, and you could argue whether that's realistic or not. But in the book 1984 and the allusion I made last week, This has not been fully developed yet. They're working on it. They are still advancing it. They um, are using it to an extent. They're introducing it. But the idea is that in a few generations, it will be the main language that everyone speaks and they won't even remember the old language. And hopefully, at least from this perspective of controlling the society, hopefully they won't be able to think these rebellious thoughts and thoughts against the party and against the system because they won't even have the words to describe the ideas, and that's the idea, but as you look at how Newspeak would evolve and really come into its own fruition within a few generations, as Orwell lays out, That is more what I'm talking about in this next aspect of technocracy. It's not that you are slightly manipulating some of the information, some of the history, some of the data. We already see that today. There was an example where there is a Supreme Court justice that's being uh, interrogated by many different people. And there's one time when she said something about, I believe it was sexual preference. I know the key word was preference, and she was called out as uh, being offensive, that that an offensive term when you talk about preference, and if you state it in that way, that is offensive. Well, within a few hours, Webster's Dictionary Online had added the fact that preference was an offensive term when stated in that context, and that had not been there before, but all of a sudden, there was this uh, very high-profile interview being done, and this came up as an issue, and all of a sudden, the very definition of the word was modified in real time, and that is something that happens in 1984. That's what the Ministry of Truth does. They make sure that history and media and all of these things conform to what the party has always said and what they are saying so that they are never wrong, and the image and the concepts and the ideas that they put across just always are. And if they ever were anything different, then they just change it. And so then you can say that it always was. And that's the idea. We already had that going on right now. That's kind of the point. That's a random example I just actually heard about within the past few days. But this stuff does happen already. But think about the aspect of when new speak is completely enacted. I've talked about this with the internet before that there is this capability there that as big tech basically controls uh, 90-something percent of the internet, what if they just start censoring things and changing things and only showing you certain things, the shadow banning, all these kinds of things that we know are happening now? What if this comes to its full fruition? And that's where I'm going with this later stage of technocracy. It's fairly similar with the illusion of Machiavelli's The Prince. And The Prince, he's talking about a specific ruler. Or you could think of a specific government. And uh, it's this idea of them being very uh, self-centered, self-focused, focused focused on their own power, stabbing people in the back, but putting forth a good image of being a good Christian man kind of a thing or good uh, Christian nation, whatever, and doesn't necessarily have to be Christian. Moral, I guess, would be a better term. But the idea here is that he's applying it to a certain person, and we could easily extract that out to a specific government. But what if you apply that to an entire societal system where everyone is thinking in this way about society? It's not necessarily that everyone in society is Machiavellian towards everyone else, It's that everybody views the social body, so to say, as something that should function in a Machiavellian way where things are done for the good of the social body and it's all about the social body that's what comes first that's what's at the very top and the individuals within the social body are sacrificed they're stabbed in the back they are treated poorly at times when it's what's best for the social body it's that the social body itself is Machiavellian and it's it's rhizomatic, maybe. It's something that is a little different because the social body isn't this concrete thing. It's not necessarily even a political system or a cultural social movement. It's just this It's this concept, it's this abstract, it's this idea that people are looking towards that society is oriented around and people are doing things for the good of everyone else. It's the greatest good for the greatest number. It's that kind of idea here and the Machiavellian approach could be viewed from that perspective. And that gets more in line with what I'm thinking in this later stage technocracy. It's it's the same thing with the idea of the panopticon. If you expand that out similar to how Foucault did, where it's not just this architectural design for a prison, but it's uh, systems to control society. And you get that a little broader even. And You apply that to social engineering at mass scale, then the watchers, so to say, think of the watchers in the tower of the prison that are looking at all the cells at all times, and there's just a few of them, but they can really control everything. Or you expand that out to maybe a government that's doing a similar thing, and you've got maybe the CIA or the NSA, and they're watching everyone, surveilling everyone, and you never know when they're going to be watching you and how they're going to catch you on different things and all this kind of stuff. Yes, you could see that being a thing. But what about at mass scale when the watchers become anyone loyal to the system as a whole? It's all the people who are living for the benefit of the social body. It's a true self-regulating citizenry without any actual police or laws or visible government necessary on any significant level. It's something where, again, the social body is what's put at the top. There are those that are highly dedicated to that, and you see this in 1984 as well, but it definitely applies here to the Panopticon concept even more because all it takes is a few people that are fully bought in on this idea of doing what's good for the social body from a Machiavellian perspective, and it just takes a few of them to keep everybody else in check because you've got the social pressures, number one. We're seeing that right now with COVID-19 and masks. I can show you study after study that shows that masks are not effective against this type of virus just period that the only time they are to any statistical difference is when someone is sick and they're coughing or sneezing or something like that, then having a covering over their face while this is going on is something that can help, definitely. But most of the studies, I even saw one the other day that showed that in a randomized trial, there was a group that wore nothing, a group that wore N95 masks, and a group that wore cloth masks. And it was all studying um, influenza-like illnesses and viruses. And so uh, this was before COVID, obviously. But what the results were, were that the N95 masks were definitely more effective than the cloth masks by far. But the interesting thing is that the control group that didn't wear any masks actually fared better than the cloth mask groups. So the group wearing cloth masks actually contracted the viruses more than the group that wasn't wearing any masks. And so there are many studies like this that make it very clear that having everyone in society wear a mask at all times is just not scientific, and it could actually be doing more harm. And I would say this is a better... Example where you can relate to specific scientific studies, that's a lot better than saying, oh, it lowers your oxygen levels to a certain degree. Well, that's pretty minuscule, not really a big deal. But if you can actually say that it raises the infection rate, then yeah, that's probably something you probably should not be doing. But anyway, the point here is that in today's world, if I go to the store and I don't wear a mask, I have lots of people giving me very dirty looks. There are people that are throwing out comments just out loud oh I guess he doesn't care about grandma you know stuff like that I have actually heard of people's like hearing and being told these things before Uh, my buddy was standing in line the other day at a restaurant and they're standing outside six feet apart for each group and there was one group uh, I think he said it was a guy and like his kids or something and uh, they didn't have their masks on at the time well again they're outside six feet apart whatever uh, that's it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but apparently someone walked out and, um, they walked by this line and made a comment out loud where everyone can hear, oh, I guess some people don't care that my wife has stage four cancer. You know, you'd think they could just put on a mask and he just, you know, kept walking. And it's this idea of the social pressure that you get just from looks, just from comments. And, all it takes is a few people that are completely sold on this idea of masks or whatever else, and they can really help control the society. A lot of people will wear masks just because they don't want to be called out. They don't want to be viewed from that perspective. They don't want people to look at them that way. They don't want people to think that they don't care about other people. They want to be considerate and they want other people to think that they are considerate. And so now, this social pressure by the few that are completely sold on something. ...is an idea that is um, from this concept of the panopticon... ...but can be applied on a societal level... And it can have a big impact, especially in creating a self-regulating citizenry with the social body kind of regulating itself. Now, I just realized that I have spent more than half of this podcast episode just talking about this transition between one to the other, and I've got to get to the other. And so I am going to attempt this. Um, We'll see how this goes. But uh, the next system, I guess, that I am proposing and making allusions to, again, is one that I'm titling Plato's Brave New World Foundation. And so it's the idea of Plato's Republic, um, Brave New World by Huxley, and the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. And so with Plato's Republic. This is something that I've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, and you should just go back and listen to other episodes, and you can hear about this. I did one on Ideologies of the Elite is the title, I believe, and that was midway through season one, probably, and I went over this book, among others. Uh, Interesting side note, I was actually in an elementary school in the downtown area where I live, and I saw a name that kind of caught my attention, Margaret Mead. It was a school that had murals all over the wall, and there were quotes that were written out in different places, and I recognized Margaret Mead, and I couldn't figure out where it was. It was from that episode that I did, The Ideologies of the Elite. She was someone that wrote a book about an island where everybody basically lived free, they were promiscuous, they would sleep around with anybody they wanted, children didn't necessarily stay with their parents. They just kind of go around to the village to different people. It was this free love society where anything goes. And it was this utopia and everything was perfect. Everyone was happy, all this stuff. And, uh, She wrote this book that, you know, explained all of this and talked about her travels there and stuff. Well, people ended up going back later and finding out that it was all a lie, that this actually wasn't really the way that it was. And so she had written a book that really helped skyrocket the sexual revolution and the free love movement, this kind of stuff. And it was all based on a lie. And I saw this quote from this person in an elementary school in the library. So not only is it an elementary school where... Uh, It's someone that promoted the idea of like, Hey, sleep around with everybody. Uh, That's probably not what you want to get across to the kids, but it's also in a library from a lady that lied about a whole experience and had basically a best-selling book that helped promote a movement Um, that just seemed a little off. Well, to tie that in to what I'm getting into in this next view of technocracy, there's another quote that caught my eye and it was from Plato and it was actually from Plato's Republic. And I thought that was kind of odd in an elementary school. Well, Sure enough, in Plato's Republic, he talks about eugenics and breeding the best elite class to rule over everybody else. And you pull them out at a young age, you completely control the breeding and the education. And you pick these leaders out and then you give them a separate education. And they are the ones that basically control society and control the lessers. And um, there, there's, you know, definitely a lot more to it there. But uh, this idea of you've got to find them when they're really young and pull them out, and that that's when you can really mold them and shape them you censor what they see what they hear you Uh, Basically, it's all music is the way uh, Plato states it, but it's talking about poetry and stories and anything we would think of as media today. All of it is censored because you don't want people watching stories of people lying or people being rebellious or being disrespectful to the elite class or to the rulers or whatever. And so you just don't have any of that at all in the society. You censor it all. And that was the idea. Well, you have to do all this stuff starting very young so that you can indoctrinate somebody into fitting into this system that you want to create, and that was Plato's idea. Well, the quote that I saw in the school, in an elementary school, was the quote where Plato says, basically, I don't remember what the exact quote was, but basically, you have to find them when they're young, and that's when you have to start molding them, you know, something like that, and uh, it it was just, just one of those things where if you really know what that quote is about... And what he's referring to there, like that shouldn't be in a school, definitely not an elementary school. And that is a little ridiculous. But anyway, moving on, let's get into this idea of Plato's Republic. Well, the idea here is a lot like what I just said, Um, the governance in Plato's Republic is very scientific with experts at the top that are very knowledgeable, they have access to all of the wisdom and knowledge and literature from many different fields, and it's this idea of the philosopher kings. They're not necessarily just um, political experts, but they're experts in all kinds of things, philosophy and science and mathematics and all these things. And um, obviously, as you can tell, this gets into what we would consider the more scientific technological fields of today, and that fits in really well with the idea of a technocracy. And um, you could either apply this to the technocracy system the technocratic system where you have this this elite class at the top that's ruling over everything but it's people of all different specialties that are experts in all these different scientific fields, and they are, um, you could say, ideally, benevolently making these decisions about how society is run, and those are the people at the top. Or you could even say that this is exactly what an AI could be, or multiple AIs, that's what they do. They're computers that use algorithms, and they can figure things out. They can crunch the data. They can figure out exactly what's best for society. Society as a whole, they would be experts in just about every field. Any data that you put in, uh, they know. And so you could put in whatever data you want, whatever information you want, whatever philosophical ideas, whatever mathematics, whatever anything. And the AI would then learn from the data that it's fed and it could run the society. I know a lot of people have talked a lot about this transhumanist idea and getting into this idea of AIs playing a more prominent role. But uh, again, it, it all fits it doesn't matter which way it went. It all fits with this concept of the elites at the top that are um, deciding everything, but they're experts. They're not politicians. And they know a lot about all different subjects, and they're trying to do what's best for the society and the system as a whole. And a lot of us may argue with their morality in this, but from their perspective, at least, they are doing this from a fairly objective perspective, objectively doing what's best and not letting petty things like morals and ethics and emotions get in the way here. And so this is the concept out of Plato's Republic. The idea of Brave New World is one that has a lot of tie-ins to all this kind of stuff. It's similar to Republic where it's all about breeding specific classes and uh, very eugenics-based. But the idea here is that you have some people bred to be alphas, some people are betas, you know, and so on and so forth. And so you are breeding people, you have specific classes that they all fit into, but they all actually enjoy their roles in their different classes and jobs. So the people at the the top are glad they're at the top, but the people in the middle are actually glad that they're in the middle, and they don't have all those pressures and things that those upper management types have to deal with. And the people at the bottom are just happy to be just workers. They're doing their job. They're performing it well, and uh, they have this structure and the system that they fit in with, and it's very satisfying, and they enjoy it. And so basically, everybody enjoys what they do, and everything is done for the good of the social body. And so it's all about doing things for humanity's own good. It's not about necessarily satisfying your own drives to succeed and to get at the top and do better than everyone else. It's more about this inner drive to do the best that you can do to benefit the social body to the maximum that you possibly can. And you do focus on things like, Entertainment and uh, sexual desire, and all of these types of things. um, These are things that are basically distracting you, in a sense, is what I would say, at least. But um, this is to them what is satisfying them that they are able to just uh, do things like the whole free love stuff and uh, drugs. You have soma that, you know, if you're feeling these pesky things like emotions or um, a conscience starts to come up, you know, you pop some drugs and you feel all better, and everything kind of just goes away and you're happy-go-lucky and go on about your business. And this is kind of the idea where you filter out, you censor out emotions and morality from these perspectives. And so it's interesting that when you compare to Plato's Republic, he censors it out by just taking away the stuff. He gets rid of basically all media that would be um, influential from a an immoral perspective, you could say. Uh, but in Brave New World, it's kind of the opposite. It's that... Having all of these things, fully satisfying sensual desires and uh, having the drugs where you can fully satisfy um, an altered state of mind and all of these things, having the technology to do basically whatever you want, go on vacation all the time, whatever, it's actually giving people this and All of it and as much of it as they can. And that in and of itself censors out the things like morality and emotions and conscience and these kinds of things. And so it's like a different approach to the same thing, though, with the same goal of getting people to do what's best for the social body, doing it from a fairly objective perspective with experts at the top. In Brave New World, I think they're the world controllers might be the people at the top that are managing things. But it's much more of this idea idea of a system it's the social body it's not necessarily that you have like a president or a government or anything like this it's more just that the social body is a thing it's the structure that everything is oriented around and there's different departments of the social body it's like a more rhizomatic approach to 1984 in a sense and so in brave new world you have these different branches with the different classes and they make sure that society goes on the way it's supposed to go on and that uh, people get what they want and what they need, that Soma keeps flowing, you know, the spice must flow kind of idea. Uh, I'm not doing a Dune illusion here, though. But the idea here is that you have this more arbitrary, non-visible, non-physical thing, structure, that is controlling society, but it's it's not a physical, visible thing. It's, it's different. And it's this concept of the social body really and everyone's on board with it and after you again go through a few generations of this then everybody's on board with it and it just seems crazy if someone like has emotions and doesn't pop a soma like what something's wrong with them and you know we should probably turn them in it's for their own good that kind of idea there well the the final illusion that i have is the foundation series by asimov and To hit on this very briefly, as briefly as I can at least, the idea here is that something has been invented, a new science called psychohistory. And uh, with this, you have Henry Selden, and he's developed this. It's a mathematical approach to how societies. change and rise and fall and how they end up basically you can see the future in a sense from a very macro perspective he's working with whole populations of entire planets so this is very macro but he developed a a mathematics that can determine all of these things if you give it enough data that masses of people in general react in specific ways and it can be fairly predictable and you can predict that an economy will have a certain shift, a political system will have a certain shift, that the society, given the state that they're in, the education that they have, the economy that they're in, you can predict how that society is going to react to that specific economic shift or political shift and so if you can basically figure this out for all the different aspects Of a society, uh, again, economics, politics, education, media, entertainment, you know, all these different things, then you can basically end up predicting. How a society, how a planet is going to uh, basically evolve, how it's going to play out. And he got this down to a more exact science and uh, figured out that basically the empire that existed at this time, it was this massive galactic empire with Trantor as the planet at the center, controlling all these other planets all over the galaxy, but he could see that this was going to fall and that everything was basically going to go into chaos and anarchy and I I get annoyed by that term being applied to just chaos because that's not what it is but uh, that's the way that Asimov at least states it and Selden sees that there is a way out so basically there's no way to stop this from happening but this can either be something that takes thousands of years to correct itself before you get a stable empire and stable planets and governments and societies that can cooperate and you can basically have galactic galactic peace. This can happen, but it's going to take thousands of years to get there. Whereas, if he institutes a few specific things, he can get this down to a much shorter time, just a few thousand years. And this is something that could be doable if he established two what he calls foundations. So there's one that is very visible and straightforward and one that is more behind the scenes and moving things from um, a perspective that is not so visible and not so physical. So again, it goes really well with this stuff. But the idea is that one foundation is basically a group of they're a group of intellectuals pretty much they're making a galactic encyclopedia and so they go to this very remote planet, and the idea here is that they're not going to be very involved, that the Empire is going to start to decay, and these planets that are on the outskirts, they're not going to have a lot of influence there. They're kind of shielded because they're on the outskirts, but then eventually, they're going to come in contact and conflict with the planets around them as the Empire starts to lose influence. They're not protected by the Empire anymore. Well, then as planets are standing up for themselves, making their own alliances, their own small empires, then This foundation will come into contact with them. But the idea here is that the foundation is centered around technological progress. They're going to be better than everyone else. They have all this knowledge, they have all this skill. And so um, this does play out, and Selden can figure out exactly how it's going to play out when times of crisis and conflict will come up, and all this kind of stuff. But At the same time in the background, there is this second foundation made up completely of psychohistorians that know about psychohistory and how it plays out and how societies interact and how they play out. And what they're basically doing is they take what's called the Selden Plan. It's Selden basically... Uh, figured out exactly how things play out for a long thousands of years and uh, they want to stick to this plan so that the interregnum time period in between the fall of the Galactic Empire and the next reign of peace is as short as possible and the second foundation is making sure that everyone stays on the Selden plan and this way they can make that time period as short as possible and so what they do is they do this by doing it behind the scenes they have some, uh, this way sort of the sci-fi aspect comes into play, more fantasy here, where they have some mental powers where they can alter what people think and their brain patterns and things like this. And so what they do is they try to not use this power. And when they do, they do it as little as possible, but they ultimately monitor how different societies and planets are going about things, how these societies are evolving, how they're going to war and forming alliances and all these things. And when they need to, they place agents in maybe in a specific political court, or maybe in a specific position, or maybe they alter or manipulate one specific person at a key time, just to make sure that everything stays on path, because you know Selden had this down pretty well. He knew roughly what was going to happen, but there's always these variables that come up, and so the second foundation is there to make sure that things stay on track. But again, you should see a lot of the similarities here. It's a specific small group of elites that have superior genetic traits that steer the progress of the human race as a whole by guiding and adjusting social and political bodies. This, along with the other illusions, they all really highlight the fact that the rulers, the true rulers, are largely unknown and not very visible. The control grid itself is not necessarily physical or visible, but is rather a mix of manipulating ideologies and incentives and cultures and pressures, genetics individual thought, morality, all of this type of stuff. And it's very rhizomatic, so to say. These systems kind of work together. They mesh, they meld, they send up shoots in different places, they have different departments. Um, There are social pressures that make it a self-correcting and self-regulating system. But you do have the experts at the top that are making sure that the right tweaks are in place, the right information is given or censored, and that everything is operating For peak efficiency for the model of the social body that they think is best. Now, this is what I think we are headed to for the later stage technocracy, the later stage technocratic system. It's much more of this perspective. And at the risk of being too abrupt, I'm just going to stop there because this has already ran longer than I expected and planned. And I've, again, been trying to keep episodes down to a more manageable level ever since season, the end of at least the interviews for season two. And so I'm working on that. I'm, I'm trying to get there. I'm actually not really sure what I'll be doing for the next episode. I do want to talk about the biosecurity paradigm and uh, vaccines and different things like this, as well as tying in the... Analogy and patterns from the Reformation that I did in season two and tying that into season three and into basically what I just covered, the shift into technocracy and the evolution of a technocracy and technocratic systems. Uh, There's a lot of stuff like that that I want to do, and I'm not exactly sure how I'll do that, but that's probably what's coming up in the next episode or two. And then eventually I'll get to the other things that I mentioned. I promise I'll get to things like investing in cryptocurrencies and homesteading and all kinds cool stuff like that and we will get there i do have a side note shout out to do i did check to see if there are any new reviews and there still only are a few and none really new on any of the main things but i saw that on podcast addict there is only one review but it's one that doesn't show up anywhere else so this is from mk6mec they said that it was a great podcast that it's a must listen from the beginning and very informative and they gave five stars. So thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I didn't even know you could give reviews on Podcast Addict. So that's also nice to know. I actually use Podcast Addict myself. That's where I or that's the platform that I use to listen to all of my podcasts. So that's cool. It's good to know. I always had gone to apple or somewhere to leave a review if i was going to do that for a show and that's nice not figure out how to do that on podcast addict but thank you very much for that review anybody who hasn't done that already i know i have uh, hundreds of people that listen to the show but there are only a handful of reviews there so i know most of you have not done that so if you would please do so it really does help and i really appreciate it when people do that Thank you very much for just listening. Thank you for the support on Patreon for those who are actually giving money to the podcast and covering hosting fees and that kind of stuff. I will cut out here for this episode and come back next week for something new. Peace. This has been another episode of our foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.